0: one of the key barriers to this tech has been about safety and safety of the implant itself, the device, because ultimately in order to create this connection requires some type of interface to directly contact the brain and that the existing solutions did not um, you know, uh, adequately respect or optimize the safety of the interface and that was slowing down progress, but also as a surgeon, the safety of the procedure. So we need sort of, we needed non-damaging and minimally invasive interfaces with the brain. And that's exactly what Precision has been uh, working on. And now, from San Francisco
1: and the UCSF Rosenman Institute, the health technology podcast with your host, Christine Winoto.
2: Brain-computer interfaces allow people with neurological diseases to control external devices, such as a robotic arm using their minds alone. While the technology has existed for over 20 years, it has only recently moved into mainstream medical practice. A company called Precision Neuroscience is pioneering this transition. Precision President and Chief Product Officer, Craig Mermel, understands that commercializing the technology means first, making it safe, minimally invasive, and adaptable to fit the varying needs of neurological patients. From engineering, the first ever Apple Watch to conduct digital pathology research at Google, Craig has always favored the intersection of technology and healthcare. He's with us today to discuss his journey into health tech and the life-changing medical devices has since created. Here's our conversation. Hi, Crick, welcome. Thanks for joining me this morning.
0: Thank you for having me. It's great to be here.
2: It's not raining quite yet, but uh, we're supposed to get a bunch of rain. So we'll be in here for the uh, indoor for a week, I guess. Yeah. I thought it'd be great for us to uh, for our listeners to hear a little bit about your background. You have quite a journey uh, where you start your career. You did medical school, but then you, you also work in Apple. But tell us about how you get to where you are today.
0: Yeah, um, thanks. I'm happy to start there. So, I mean, I've always been somebody um, who loves math and, and biology and wanted to find ways to take those two interests and have real impact in the world. Um, so I, you know, uh, I'm a physician scientist by training. I went to the Harvard MIT, uh, you know, health sciences and technology program, which is a fantastic place to go to medical school and meet a lot of people who are both like-minded physicians, but also uh, engineers and uh, business students and people thinking about technology. So I took I took medical school classes with uh, folks who were doing bioengineering degrees and flown MBA, and so that was just part of the ecosystem that helped shape. Uh, my view that there was so many other ways than just being a doctor uh, to, to have an impact. Um, when I was in grad school, this was in the mid two thousands, and the thing I was looking for a way to combine my interest in data and healthcare, and the, the you know the genome had just been sequenced, and we were at the beginning of this amazing p- period where genomic technology just went on a Moore's hyper Moore's law type explosion. Uh, and I went to grad school during that period, so I found myself actually I did my my thesis work at the Broad Institute and worked on the cancer genome, where we were applying you know computational tools to take the massive amounts of genomic data that we were generating and try to use that to discover new cancer genes or new insights into the causes of disease. And it really went from being a scientific question to one that was like translationally practically relevant within a very short period of time. Right? It was very clear that the way we were going to diagnose and treat cancer cancer, you know, changed in in a matter of years. So when I finished my graduate school and I had to go back and finish clinical training, I was thinking about how to combine these interests. And uh, I I asked myself, where is that going to happen in the hospital? And the the answer was in the pathology lab. So I did clinical training uh, in pathology at MGH with an idea of trying to work on, you know, clinical, having a foot in the clinic, but also having a a strong interest in bringing new technology uh, to bear. And I had a great time and was very, Productive, but uh, I continued to keep thinking about what were the next waves of things that were happening. And um, this is where part of the story that got me to my current role began, which is um, my good friend from medical school, Ben Rappaport, and I uh, had an interest in in wearable technology. Uh, And so at at the end of medical school and into residency, we started a small company that was thinking about future applications of pervasive wearable tech. We said, you know, this is just like genomics, we were going to be digitizing aspects of our biology and behavior that were previously unavailable and that was going to lead us to amazing insights into into people's health and disease. And so we did that work and it was sort of a nights and weekends project. Um, by 2013, 14, we had some tech we thought was pretty cool and we wanted to license that to a med device or a you know, a, a device manufacturer, not a med device, but a, but a company making us a wearable technology. And we were fortunate enough that the company that ultimately was interested in this tech was was Apple. And so in 2014, I moved from uh, a very comfortable and safe and friendly job in, in academic medicine, moved to the moved from the East Coast to the Bay Area and found myself working uh, as sort of an embedded scientist on, on the Apple Watch uh, engineering team. And we got to work on, you know, the first generation of a watch and watches Apple itself on got more and more interested in, in applications, not just uh, wellness applications or fitness applications, but, but health uh, applications. So I was at Apple from 2014 to 2018, um, had a great time and learned a, a ton and then started thinking about, I need to find a way back to my clinical roots as a pathologist. So uh, at that time, Google research was starting to spin up projects working on, uh, artificial intelligence applied to to medical imaging data, which, of course, there was massive amounts of imaging data and things, fields like radiology and ophthalmology and dermatology. But one of the areas that was emerging was digital pathology and the ability to scan tissue slides. So they um, recruited me to help lead one of their research teams working on applying latest advances in AI to uh, to pathology. And I spent four years at Google, uh, learned... Whole new set of things about working uh, at the intersection of, of AI and healthcare data. And, um, you know, most recently, uh, my current role, I'm president and chief product officer of precision neuroscience. We can talk more about that, but, but really the promise was, um, twofold. One, an opportunity to rejoin a good friend, uh, that we had previously, Ben Rappaport, who found, was the founder and sort of a visionary behind the work we're doing. Um, Ben is a neurosurgeon and an electrical engineer. And uh, has been working in the brain-computer interface space, uh, other than our brief for it, Apple for his for his entire career. Um, he had founded a company, and uh, you know we kind of talked about this as being yet another pattern of it starts with hardware advances where we get new types of data out of out of biologic systems, and that over time that turns into uh, problems at the intersection of data science, machine learning, and and healthcare. Um, I thought this was going to be a five or seven when he first, when Ben first told me about this, I thought this was going to be a five or seven year journey before you had a device in somebody's brain that would be collecting data. Um, uh, as we can talk about, uh, it turns out we're, we're moving quite a bit faster than that. So after spending a year sort of on the sidelines watching the progress that Ben and his team were making, I, I said, Hey, I think, uh, this is the perfect opportunity to jump in and start, uh, working on, on what a really important uh, next wave of technology. And so I joined uh, Precision on Full-Time Capacity just over a year ago uh, at the beginning of 2022.
2: I don't very often uh, hear, uh, have guests who were in Apple. And so <laughs> I know they're very uh, cautious about what you can say and what can, you cannot say. Uh, maybe this, this is my opportunity to ask you the question. So you were saying that you and Ben Purport, uh started technology and then the Apple acquired that technology. Can you tell me more about that?
0: I, I mean, yeah. I so we we were working on uh, our initial application was working on ways of taking data from the Apple Watch and trying to uh, assess measures of functional capacity or physical fitness uh, from from these devices. So that was our that was what our startup was doing. And the reason Apple acquired us was because they had a, a, a very similar interest in building uh, fitness features for the Apple Watch. So we were, you know, more so than a tech, it was an, you know, we required. it was a great uh, outcome. And uh, with that, we we joined. Uh, uh, you know, it's, it's not say, fair to say that the technology we had versus what was embedded in the watch obviously went through uh, quite a bit of evolution. Uh, and I'd say the most important thing was that, one, we got to be in an environment where, when we were a startup, our dream was to maybe get a few thousand people using our technology, and at Apple, you get to work on technology that you know has a very good shot of being used by millions of people. That forces a level of rigor and uh, product excellence that I think, you know, is 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 amazing, and it's why they make products that we love. Is because it really shows in the effort and the, the amount of resources Apple pours into building the product. So, so for me, it was a great. Uh, you know, I think of life in terms of when you're on medical school, you think about internships and residencies. This was a residency and and how, what it takes to build to build a great product. And you know I'm proud to have been part of teams that worked on some of these features and got to see them released. And then, of course, you know, Apple went from a very small team in health when I joined, or people who were sort of thinking about potential applications to now there are regulated, software applications that sit on top of a consumer grade wearable device and clinical studies that are being launched and enrolled, uh, you know, on, uh, on top of consumer platforms. And I think, you know, I, I, I won't take credit for any, any of that. That was a huge team effort that, that and many, many people have contributed to that, but it was just such a formative time to learn about, um, the potential of this technology. And I, I, I'm, incredibly grateful and lucky that I was given that opportunity to to join and, and work on the, the work that I did.
2: Yeah. And so I think you know, Apple has that grand reputation <clears throat> that everything they do seems
0: really excellent.
2: And is there anything that you, from the experience that you work with the team of Apple that you did not know? I mean, it opened your eyes coming in uh, yeah. when you join Apple and then that you carry now.
0: Oh, I mean, so many things. I mean, I would say the first secret, this is not even a secret, Apple says it, but it's really, it's easy to say and really hard to do, which is that the reason Apple makes great products is that it genuinely cares about its products and it doesn't launch things that it's not satisfied with. And you see that. Um, it's kind of, you know, it, it's hard to do in a startup environment, especially or any resource-constrained environment, part of the reason Apple can do that. But it 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 goes to the level of care and detail and obsession that you have over getting every part of it right. I think that's part of Apple's mystique, but actually having been there and seen how it plays out in reality gives you a strong sense of, you know, work on products. And if you're going to work on something, one, pick, pick important problems. And then two, if you're going to pick a problem, try to do it. The best, the best that you can within whatever resources are available to you, and I think, um, and and you know, practically, we grew up as scientists and sort of engine, you know, working on new and innovative tech. But the difference between a a solution that works in the lab and one that works in the real world, when you're at Apple scale and you're talking about millions of people, the edge cases are going to show up, and they're going to show up. Uh, many times right so if you say oh that's one in a million it's like well in the first year you're gonna have dozens and maybe hundreds of people who are accounted edge case. so you actually have to think about that so I think it's a discipline more than anything that I took from from Apple of like what it really takes to build excellent products and to then see them through and and how much how much effort goes into uh, you know when you're in school or you're in, you're in the lab you think a 95 percent solution is is pretty close
1: mm-hmm.
0: those last five percent, takes a lot to, to do. And so that's something that I, I learned and carry with me um, quite a bit. And then, and we can talk about this as part of the story. I, I also carried with other parts in that I met amazing people. Uh, you get to see how, how many different, you were, you were chatting about this before, how many different talents it takes to have an impact from engineering and healthcare and business development and legal and privacy and, and ethics and, you know, um, and, Payment and you know all these things that have to come together and and um, at Apple you know they, they we got to put together a lot of those components and meet people and some of those people uh, including some of the great engineering talent we worked with uh, I've been fortunate enough to recruit to join on on the current journey and that's just one of the great uh, joys of getting to be an entrepreneur is getting to re rework with people that you've worked with in the past on a new on a new and important problem.
2: Yeah, that's that's the the advantage, I think, of being an entrepreneur.
1: This podcast is sponsored by Brown Rudnick's Global Life Sciences Group, a team of legal professionals that help life science companies, lenders, and investors around the world turn good science into good business. Learn more at brownrudnick.com. This podcast is also sponsored by Canon Quality Group, Canon Quality Group has been helping medtech startups set up quality management systems for over 10 years. If you're unsure when to get started with quality management in your startup, turn to the experts at canonqualitygroup.com.
2: One last question on the what you comment about the discipline of getting to that you know make sure that 5% is really good. Is this something is that like a framework that they use to trained you because you came from different area then maybe you did not have that and then how how did they train you or is somebody just like whip you up like this is not good enough
0: (laughs) you know i think that uh it wasn't like there was a class right you learn there by doing and by being part of it and the benefit is that there's people people who i got to work with had done this maybe not in exactly the domain you know Fitness or healthcare, but they had done it for the, some of the biggest consumer products in the world, and so they had a, a way of working and a and and most importantly, expectations that carried forward. So it wasn't enough to say, "Yeah, this is this is only going to happen some percentage of the time," so you can forget about it. They'd say, "No, no, like let's let's go there," and and then it shows up in and in, in the fact that the company takes that seriously and invests in trying to make the. Make the product great, and I think that's you know just shows in in, in how much people love technology, mm-hmm. and and it starts with the fact that Apple employees love their own technology and use it, and that's feedback. So I think it's it was it was something you kind of learn, um, or I learned so not not directly from somebody who didn't teach me, but you just learn it by looking at how how these things are. And I will say that some things I learned I didn't really know I learned until I left, <laughs> and.
2: That's and how then, you work, usually.
0: And yeah, you you tend to understand a place even more once you're no longer there, and you can kind of see that certain things you take for granted. This was I had had jobs, of course, in medical school, and graduate school, and residency, but this was my first time in a real corporate uh, environment, and so I'd say that I didn't fully know what I had learned until after after I left. And there are still things every day I you know think about. Uh, in our current role to see like, well, how would how would Apple do it? That being said, at a startup, you don't have the resources. So, you know, it is very common in startup world to, uh, to you know, launch and iterate and you can't always, but I think even knowing where you're trying to go is important uh, in enforcing mm-hmm. a discipline because we, you know, we, we want to, um, if you do, if you are successful, then you, you owe it to yourself and the product and the industry and the problem you're going after to try to make it as, as good as it possibly can be.
2: Yeah. So you mentioned earlier about the joint precision, um, because you had the opportunity to work with your old friends, Ben, Report, but I'm sure it's not just the friendship, but I think there's other things. Maybe you can tell us more about what Precision Neuroscience is doing.
0: Absolutely. So obviously my relationship with Ben was was a very influential part, but, but really what attracted me and why I joined was the mission of the company. So Precision Neuroscience is one of now several companies that's trying to Commercialize brain-computer interface technology and make it available to you know millions of people who are suffering from pretty devastating neurologic diseases and injury. Just a personal anecdote, you know, as a medical student, you go through all the different domains, and you know, um, some of the most moving and tragic cases I saw were on the neurology clinics where we would see a patient with a devastating stroke or neurodegenerative disease, and we had all these amazing technical tools. To diagnose and figure out what was the problem, and and in most cases the answer was well, you know we really don't have anything to offer, and that's despite amazing progress we've made in fundamental neuroscience. The translation to therapies that actually help people has been like really frustratingly slow. So you know, understanding that there is a huge human need, and then looking specifically at the you know sort of capabilities, the the, the readiness of all the different components, it's going to take. And the team that you know, not just Ben, but the team he had assembled, were all the things that made me really excited uh, to join to join Precision Neuroscience.
2: So, could you tell us more about what is the technology?
0: Yeah, yeah.
2: How does it work?
0: So, I'm I'm, I'm sure. I mean, a brain-computer interface. Um, uh, start there, and then tell you about, about how Precision is approaching the problem. So, the idea of a brain-computer interface is, you know, simple to say and hard to do. It's basically trying to create a, a direct communication between the brain's electrical activity and, you know, a, the, 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 the digital world, whether that's a computer or a mobile device or, you know, potentially a, a robotic prosthetic device like a wheelchair or a robotic limb. Um, you know, why would you, why would you potentially want to create such a connection? Um, there's many potential uses, but if you think about a lot of the neurologic diseases that I mentioned, things like stroke, spinal cord injury, uh, certain neurodegenerative conditions, they they have various causes, but the fundamental issue is that the, the, the activity of the brain, the brain's ability to think gets disconnected from, you know, the body's ability to, to take information in or out. And the idea of a brain computer interface is to try to create to, to restore function by by sort of jumping over, so to speak, you know, uh, where wherever that defect is. So if you can somebody who's who's had you know, a spinal cord injury, they their brain still works in terms of thinking and intending to move, but the body can no longer respond. But if you can allow the brain to directly control a, a robotic arm, a prosthetic device, or a computer, you can give that person back a significant amount of function, mobility, independence, and you know that by thereby doing improve their quality of life uh, significantly. So that's the that's the overall goal of brain computer interfaces. Um, before jumping into precision, just to say you know, the idea was coined, this is not like a new uh, term, like the concept was coined in the 1970s and pioneering work was done in the 90s. The first human to have a brain-computer interface was actually done in the early 2000s. So this is like not science fiction. It's actually been around for, you know, close to 20 years at this point. And there have been over like three three or four dozen patients in that time period who've had one of these devices implanted. The problem is really one of of technology translation of taking something that works in the lab in small clinical studies at like one off you know studies at institutions and building all of the components end to end that are needed to make this into a system that people can use in their everyday lives and to then take it through the FDA regulatory process, the reimbursement process and make a sustainable business on it. So the fact that you know this seems like sounds like science fiction, but actually the more I learned about the space, you realize this is a lot of the key scientific points have been proven, but it's really about how do you get this technology um, from the few dozen patients who've had it today to the millions of patients uh, who suffer from from neurologic disease and and could benefit from from this technology.
2: So what challenges that you guys overcome that bring something that was only allowed in lab for like one to a dozen people who can benefit from this to something that what innovation that you do? differently?
0: There are several things and, um, you know, several innovations that are needed. Um, what I'll tell you about is, you know, why why is Precision founded? We're not the only brain computer interface technology. It starts with Ben and his vision. So as, as I mentioned, Ben was one of my classmates. He's a neurosurgeon and he did his PhD in electrical engineering. And actually when I met him, when we were just starting school together, I said, what are you going to do? And he said, I'm going to work on brain computer interface technologies. And that was the first time I had ever heard mm-hmm. of I said, what's a brain-computer interface? So, you know, this is for Ben a long, a long journey and something he's been, been, he's really spent his whole life working on. Um, ben, you know, after our work at Apple, actually was one of the first members joined to, to, to Neuralink, uh, which was Elon Musk's venture, started in the space a few years ago. He spent a few really informative years working there and similarly learned a lot, met a lot of really important people, some of whom now mm-hmm. come to work with us at Precision. But, you know, fundamentally, why... Ben was excited and thought it was important to start precision neuroscience. Was um, a belief in that one of the key barriers to this tech has been about safety and safety of the implant itself, the device. Because ultimately, in order to create this connection, requires some type of interface to directly contact the brain, and that the existing solutions did not, um, you know, uh, adequately respect or optimize the safety of the interface, and that was slowing down progress. But also as a surgeon, the safety of the procedure. So we need sort of we needed non-damaging and minimally invasive interfaces with the brain, and that's exactly what Precision has been uh, working on. We were company was founded in 2021 um, with this. You know, we raised our Series A financing in April, um, and in those time, we've developed a novel uh, interface that we call the Layer Seven Cortical Interface. This is a uh, think of it as a very thin film, thinner than scotch tape, but you can kind of think about it as a thin and flexible substrate on which we can fabricate thousands of tiny little electrodes. And these these electrodes are much much smaller than uh, the standard electrodes that are often used in surgeries for mapping the brain. They're they're on the order of fifty microns each, and they're 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 printed at a very tight spacing. So what what it offers you, and this this device sits on the the surface of the brain. Where it does no damage to the brain, it can actually be reversed without causing any damage, and that's a really important feature to us in terms of uh, safety and characteristics. But it allows you still, you know, it's in contact with brain tissue in a non-damaging way, and it records at a very high resolution and high bandwidth the electrical information of the brain that we can then process mm-hmm. out um, and using software and machine learning turn into contr- you know control signals that can that can help restore communication with the outside world. Um, in, in addition to that, um, Ben also, and this was precision invasion, developed a minimally invasive surgical approach to place the array, even though you do need to, you know, it is in inside the skull and on the brain, so you do need to like cut through bone, but we do that in a, in a very minimally invasive way. Um, we call it a microslit insertion. We make a very thin... Uh, you know, less than a millimeter thick incision in the skin and the bone, and then using um, you know special uh, guidance and, and tools, we're able to slide the array into that slit onto the brain surface. Um, so that you know, at the end of the day, the we're, we're we're not like removing a big chunk of of skull and doing a lot of uh, morbidity in, in the surgery, and that's that's part of our system, you know, design to to make sure that these uh, implants can be developed and delivered in a in a way that's. Um, safe and effective because we want this technology to serve, you know, the largest number of, of patients possible.
2: So how far along are you uh, in term of putting this in clinical study in human? And yeah. also, I know, it seems so simple when I think about it, there's the piece that there must be some sort of battery or power that yeah. emits something there. And then also there's a skull, which is pretty. Um, um, Not very poor. I'm saying I'm not saying it's poor, but like you have to make sure that the the sensor or the electron just can pass through that. Mm -hmm. There's a lot of, and then the substrate has to withstand Mm -hmm. being inside the body. All these little things that you need to think about, right? Yeah.
0: So Uh, so every every little thing that you describe, there are problems, and they're all you know hard problems in and of themselves. But um, I mean. in terms of you asked where where our progress is, so as I mentioned, you know, so far we we are a preclinical company. We have not done human implants and we're still, um, you know, uh, we still have work to do to get to the final vision I told you about. One of the things we're really excited, so we've done a lot of work in validating the safety and the function of the system in animal models, So showing that the system can be safely implanted. It doesn't damage the brain. It records very high fidelity signals and that um, this system... You know, can uh, can can perform functions of a brain-computer interface uh, in animal models. We we've published, you know, for your listeners who are very familiar with this, we published a preprint early last year, and we have a paper that you know is describing the system and its validation. You know, going through the peer review process. So we've done a lot of the preclinical work. Um, what's unique about our approach, and it goes back to what I mentioned, that our interface is non-damaging and reversible means we can actually think about developing this for clinical applications in a staged manner so to go back to the the big vision in order to help somebody with paralysis which is a chronic injury they want a device that can they can get implanted and used for for months and many years and hopefully decades because their their injury's not going away but um, and the regulatory process for a permanent implant is is a class 3 rigorous device and takes many years to get all the way through that process but um, because our device can be placed on the brain and reverse, we can think about getting clearance for a, for a temporary short-term implant, which we are also excited about ha- has the potential to do clinical benefit mm-hmm. in the immediate instance, because what we're really doing is offering a high-resolution picture of the brain's activity. So a lot of our focus as a company, we are already making the shift from sort of a preclinical to clinical stage company, um, you know, we're, we're planning to submit our first FDA application for a temporary implantation this calendar year. Um, and we also have, you know, clinical partner sites lined up that would, you know, um, sometime this year also be doing our first human implantations. Again, there will be a stepwise process. We first have to show, repeat uh, the safety and, and functional data. And um, it's going to take us several more years to develop the other parts of the system, the implantable electronics that will power the system and communicate as well as the software. and, And that all has a separate regulatory process. So we're not, you know, we're not launching a brain computer interface technology next year, but we're moving very quickly through, um, the stages. And we think that has, um, a lot of, a lot of really important benefits to us as a company, but most importantly, um, you know, allows us to start helping patients, uh, now, and that's why all of us at precision are are working is we're, are, we're trying to do this work for for clinical benefit and we think the opportunity to do that in the near term is is really exciting and, and important uh yeah, yeah step for us
2: well I, I um i'm glad you're working on something that's really challenging and difficult um so interesting you mentioned uh in 2017 we have our symposium we invited Robert Gaunt, i don't know if you know of him and so he was talking about you know, he was, it was, I was, I'm all about robotic. I think that's really cool. Uh, so he's showing about the, the patients that he implanted and, you know, it's like the machinery that has to come with the patients. That's almost, it's not uh, practical, I guess, yeah. but it's good to see that things are moving along uh, that yeah. can benefit more patients. Um, so one last question in, I know this compared to your other company, this one, it seems like going to be like a longer journey. Mm-hmm. And, um, and having a good, a secure funding is also uh, helpful. Um, mm-hmm. So, but I'm sure there's a lot of ups and downs along the way. Uh, how do you keep the momentum going? Keep the group, uh, the teams to keep on moving, even though sometimes yeah. the end line seems far away.
0: Yeah, I mean, I think um, definitely being at a startup, you're in a different, uh, different capital environment than being potentially at a large company. Uh, um, But you know, in many ways, the the problem is the same. Which is, you even at a big company, you have to convince somebody to fund uh, to fund your work and to keep going uh, despite all the inevitable setbacks and difficulties that you encounter along the way. We've been incredibly. I mean, first thing to say is we we have a great team, and and I think you know, one of our strengths has been being mission-focused. And if you remem- remember the mission, the problems just become, you know, things to be solved, but none of them are, you know, existential issues that, you know, you, you and, and you remember the reason why you're struggling in the first place. So I think remembering the mission has been really important. But we do need a lot of, you know, we need capital. This is ex- these processes, all the testing and development that's necessary to bring a technology market is expensive. We've been incredibly fortunate to attract and recruit, uh, you know, really supportive investors. We just closed our Series B financing in, in January. Uh, you know, this was definitely not an easy time to be raising money. Uh, the capital environment, you know, has has been definitely uh, more difficult than it was in years past. But you know, importantly, I think the investors that have, we have been able to recruit have the same vision. That first of all, this is like a really important problem, nothing about the short term economic situation changes the mm-hmm. the huge human need and in some ways, the fact that you know we're not we're not yet at market means that hopefully things will will be on the next business cycle by the time we come we come to market so that mm-hmm. luck is plays an important role in, in this for sure and and um but you know we were we we have the capital and you know we 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 raised forty one million dollars, which is objectively a lot of money, but for a medical device, yeah is so so really the the important thing for us is to be good stewards of that money and use that money to make sure that we we hit the goals we need to stay on on track mm-hmm. and i would just say that you know one of the the one of the the hardest easiest things and easiest ways and this is again maybe something that you learn at apple apple for all the resources is famous for saying you know they're they steve jobs said he was prouder of the things he said no to because saying no to one thing is what allows you to put your effort into uh, you know, into things the things that are ultimately most important and, and allows you to do best work. You know, for us, it's about staying incredibly focused on what are the core problems that we need to solve in this round, um, in order to continue to add value, get closer to the goal, and be in a position to be able to support support the journey uh, and, and the mission that we set ourselves on. So, you know, it's it's important that you, uh, no matter how much money you have, that you're always laser focused on. On what are the key the key value generating steps that you can use with that money and and setting up your team and and everyone around you to execute uh, as well as you possibly can against those goals.
2: That's great. Well, thank you for your time. I appreciate your sharing your insight and good luck.
1: Thank you.
0: It was great to great to be here, and I enjoyed it.
1: Thank you for listening to another episode of the Health Technology Podcast. We want to thank our executive producer, Herminio Neto, and our podcast engineer, Andrew Rojek. If you enjoyed this podcast, be sure to subscribe and leave a review. The Health Technology Podcast is available on all major platforms.